All right. Well, let me ask you a question uh, to begin our study this morning. When you hear the name Jeeves, what do you think? Butler, right? <laughs> it's automatic. At some point, and I really don't know how this happens in a living language like English, Jeeves became synonymous with being a butler. Uh, in fact, Merriam-Webster's dictionary has added Jeeves as a noun. It's not just a name anymore, it's a noun. You can become a Jeeves, a butler. It means a butler or valet, especially one of model behavior. So it's, a Jeeves is not just a butler, it's a good butler. That's what a Jeeves is. It is a proper name, though, which comes down to us from an old English form meaning son of Jeffrey. That's what Jeeves means. And it used to be a fairly common name. But I checked with the U.S. Census Bureau, which tracks baby name trends, popularity, that kind of thing. And there were more, to put this in perspective, there were more Biffs born in recent years than Jeeveses. There weren't many of either, to be sure. <laughs> and we all intuitively know why very few parents would seriously consider naming their newborn Jeeves, right? Sarah and I just had a baby, and, you know, we, I like to come up with baby names. We never considered Jeeves, and I can tell you why. Jerry Seinfeld used to have this bit he would do. He would say, and I wish I could do a good Jerry Seinfeld impersonation, but I can't. I won't even try. I won't, I won't torture you. But he said, did you ever notice a lot of butlers are named Jeeves? I think when you name a baby Jeeves, you've pretty much mapped out his future. And that's true, isn't it? Now, the reason why I point all this out is because Onesimus, this slave who is a central personality in Paul's letter to Philemon and who has gone AWOL from Philemon's house, is basically named Jeeves. That's his name. The name Onesimus means helpful. That's a slave's name. Just as surely as Jeeves is the name for a butler, if you had a baby and named him helpful, you've pretty much mapped out his future. This might indicate that he was born into slavery. By naming him Onesimus, they had given him a name that would have fit his role in society. Paul was cracking a little joke about his name in verse 11 when he wrote, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Sometimes in books or TV or movies, you might hear kind of a rich, upper-crust, patrician character say in kind of a waspy accent, referring to the, their household servants as the help. <laughs> Or they might say, it's hard to find good help these days. Well, please note, that is essentially what this man's name is. He's named the help. That's his name. He might as well have been named Jeeves. He's a human tool whose value was found in his utility to others and not in his own unique personhood. He's useful to the people in his life but he is not beloved and cherished. He's Onesimus, useful, human tool. Now, the main overarching thread that will link all of our times together in this series is the way that Paul's letter to Philemon demonstrates how the gospel should be lived out in the messy reality of our lives. And guys, the first century Roman world is a messy place. <laughs> it is a messy messy place, full of such incredible injustice that it would make an American's head spin, truly. Uh, people are non-people there, definitionally, by law, including this Onesimus. Our other letters written by Paul will make the gospel, both what it is and what it isn't, the main object of his teaching. However, this book is different. Paul's letter to his friend Philemon is not about the gospel, but it's about how the gospel should be lived out in the lives of believers and in their relationships. So we started two weeks ago by talking about love as a Christian's governing ethic. Love is at the heart of the letter to Philemon. 
And that makes sense because it's at the heart of the gospel. And Paul and Philemon both are two men who have been shaped by the gospel. The gospel and its central governing ethic of love is what has shaped the way they live, the way they worship, the way they relate to others in their life. Probably not perfectly, of course not perfectly, but this is their goal. This is something that they agree upon as good and right and something that they should attain to. Last week, Andrew picked things up by giving close and careful attention to Paul's gospel-shaped way of praying for Philemon. And I want to thank Andrew for his excellent message on that topic. Now, the main idea that we're going to pull out of Philemon this week is this. What I really want to do is I, I want to do a full frontal assault on the issue of slavery in Philemon. It's an uncomfortable topic. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But here are the two things I think we should walk away from at the end of our time together. The gospel is primarily designed to transform broken people, not broken systems in the world. And relationships among God's people, this people within a people that we call the church, relationships here among us must look different than in the surrounding culture. These are the two things I want us to walk away from our discussion of slavery in Philemon this morning. When the Holy Spirit causes the gospel to flourish in a person's heart, it transforms them. It reshapes their inner world in ways that will fundamentally alter how they live in relationship with others. And as a people within a people, the church exists to glorify God through our unified testimony that He is excellent and needed and good. Through our self-sacrificing love for one another in the church, this points the surrounding culture toward a more excellent way. However, I do have to own that the relationship at the center of Philemon is a particularly controversial one for us as Americans. I remember when I first moved to Florida and uh, settled into my new pastorate in Lulu, Florida. Great little town, great little church. I went for a walk, and I came to a place where there was, it was all overgrown with vines. You had to kind of cut back the bushes to see what was going on in there. But when I did, there was exposed a sign that said, Slave Cemetery. I was like, wow. I mean, I knew that stuff had happened, but this is where they actually laid their bones. They lived here. They walked these roads. They worked on these farms. And here's where they rest. Slaves. It's a reality. I remember when I was doing a school report, um, I was supposed to interview somebody and about the changes that they had seen in America over their lifetime. And the oldest person I knew at that time was my grandmother. So I went to my grandmother. She grew up here in Arista County. And in talking to her, I, I, had tried, I wanted to talk to her about the Great Depression. If I think rightly, that was the topic of the paper. It's been a long time. I don't remember. But somehow, somehow over the meandering course of our conversation, she said to me, and it blew my mind, that when she was a little girl, she could remember seeing Civil War veterans in Fourth of July parades. Guys, that is not that far distant. I have known somebody who in their living memory shared space with a Civil War veteran. What's remarkable is that in so, so short a span of time, we've elected a black president, we have um, had the civil rights era, we have done a lot to move the ball and to uh, right some historical wrongs among the American people. However, it, we have to say that the African slave trade that was practiced in the early part of our country's history still casts a long shadow over our national psyche. And the scar of that evil practice has never really healed among the American people. And just a brief inventory of headlines from the past year. Still, we still know this is a current issue being talked about among Americans. The legacy of slavery in our own country makes the reading of Philemon uncomfortable because the existence and seeming acceptance of slavery within the early church is a central fact of this short letter. Paul's counsel to his friend and slave master Philemon might have had the effect of tempering slavery, but Paul stopped well short of denouncing the practice outright. 
He speaks to Philemon about changing his heart toward Onesimus, but not about changing Onesimus's legal status. And that makes readers in America today very uncomfortable. We tend to read verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, and we think to ourselves, why send him back at all, poor fella? <laughs> Don't send him back to Georgia. Send him on to Canada. What are you doing? What do we make of the issue of slavery in Philemon? We have to address this because critics of the Bible will point to this and say, see, your Bible is not a good source of moral authority. Your Bible failed to condemn slavery when it was happening among your church leaders. And so if they're wrong on that, what else is the Bible wrong about? You see, this is where this goes. We have to understand this. We have to wrestle with this a little bit. As you're already undoubtedly aware, the background of this letter is that a wealthy Christian man named Philemon, in fact, Paul tells us that he is a leader in the Colossian church, the church meets in his home, had a slave named Onesimus. And for reasons that are not exactly clear, Onesimus goes AWOL from Philemon's household. And although this brief letter doesn't really flesh out everything that happened, there is reason to believe that maybe Philemon's house was a difficult place to serve. Paul has nothing negative to say about Philemon in his letter to Philemon, but the very presence of the letter, the very fact that he has to exhort Philemon towards this desired conclusion, would indicate that this might not be a natural place that Philemon would arrive at on his own. That's maybe one thing we can conclude. But we also see that perhaps in running away, Onesimus inflicted some kind of loss on Philemon. Maybe something had even been stolen by Onesimus. This is most likely what prompted Paul to write what he does in verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Somehow, and again, we're not given the details, I wish we knew, Onesimus finds his way from the Colossian area all the way to Rome, where Paul was. Paul was under arrest in Rome at the time, and somehow Onesimus goes there and finds him. Likely, Onesimus had met Paul before. Paul had founded the Colossian church. Uh, he was a familiar person with Philemon. Philemon owes his very salvation to Paul. They knew each other, and perhaps through his contact with Philemon and his household, he had also had a passing familiarity with Onesimus. It's possible that when Onesimus left, he thought, the only person who can help me with Philemon is Paul. Maybe he sought out Paul on purpose to seek somebody who could arbitrate whatever was going on. Anyway, they find each other, and through Paul's evangelistic effort, Onesimus becomes a Christian. And verse 10 says this, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Then, apparently, Paul urges Onesimus to return to Philemon to make things right. The practice of slavery in the first century Roman world was different in many respects from the kind of slavery that was practiced in the United States prior to 1865. However, and this has to be owned, there is enough overlap to make us potentially uncomfortable with its presence in the early church. Slaves would go on to gain some limited rights later in the Roman Empire, but at the time Philemon was written, slaves were legally non-persons in the eyes of the state. They had no legal standing whatsoever. A master could kill his slave without consequence. Slaves would go on to gain some limited rights, but at the time this letter was written, that was not so. Rome made it illegal to harbor fugitive slaves. Professional slave catchers were hired to hunt down runaways. It was an entire industry in Rome, in the Roman world, I should say, not just the city. Advertisements were posted with descriptions of escaped slaves, and rewards were commonly offered. If caught, fugitives could be punished by being whipped, branded, or killed. One common practice was to brand fugitive slaves with the letters F-U-G from the Latin fugitivus, meaning fugitive. Sometimes slaves would have a metal collar riveted around the neck. One such collar is preserved in a museum in Rome and states in Latin, I have run away, catch me, 
If you take me back to my master Zaninus, you'll be rewarded. Without glossing over or in any way romanticizing the abuse and exploitation that always accompanied the practice of slavery, and which was very much in evidence in the first century Roman world, I do think it's helpful to note some key distinctions between slavery as it was practiced in the days of Philemon and the African slave trade, which holds such a grip on the American imagination. First of all, it was not race-based. You could not tell by looking at a person based on their immutable characteristics, such as their skin color, if they were such a non-person. The American experience with slavery was entirely race-based. To be black made you think that they were a slave or formerly a slave. And it was, they were tainted with the, the slavery. And not so in Rome. Uh, slavery knew no, knew no racial distinctions whatsoever. There were also many more forms of slavery in the Roman world. For example, prisoners of war. Whenever Rome conquered a, another army, they typically did not send that army back home where they could rearm, get fired up, and go back at it. Do you know what they did with conquered armies? They made slaves of all of them. This was a way of subjecting other parts of the world. They would oftentimes press them into new army units and send them to parts of the empire away from where they had fought for hearth and home. They made slaves of them. Criminals, if you committed a crime, you became a slave. In this way, it's not that different from our culture. One of the things, again, in Florida that I encountered quite regularly were road gangs out of the prison. If you became a criminal, you might be pressed into a work crew. And this was true in Rome, too. If you stole some bread and you got caught, if they didn't kill you or something, you would probably become a slave to the person you stole from or otherwise punished in a similar way. And lastly, debtors. Uh, they had no form of bankruptcy. They had no way to address people who just reneged on their obligations in the Roman world. No other redress than to make them slaves. So if I entered into an agreement, I took out a loan, I couldn't pay it, then I would have to work that off. I'd become a slave. I'd belong to the person that I had failed to pay the debt to. Poor families would sometimes sell their own children into slavery, which is awful. I can't imagine being in that set of circumstances. But believe it or not, there's many documented evidence in the Roman world that this was viewed by many parents as a responsible way of providing for their children, maybe even giving them a step up. If they could get their child into an upwardly mobile home, they might have an opportunity to learn a trade or something like that, to make something with their life. But still, terrible. I mean, just heart-wrenchingly awful. Slavery was most commonly a lifelong condition, but it often took the form of indentured servitude or apprenticeship as well. Slavery was often chosen as a way of life, believe it or not. Many white-collar professions in the Roman world were peopled with slaves. In fact, most doctors in the Roman world were slaves. And many accountants and other various tradespeople who had voluntarily entered into the arrangement, viewing it as a way to better their situation. And again, as I said earlier, it was viewed as a normal consequence of failing to pay one's debts. This is just a part of the Roman economic system. Also, and this is my last point about forms of slavery in the Roman world, in many, and this is very different from the United States, but in many parts of the Roman world, there was a social order that closely resembled serfdom, where the vast majority of people within a given region would be legally considered slaves, even though they received wages for their work. It just meant that they were not free to move away or pursue professions independently. If you were just born in that area, you had to work there and you had to do what the bosses told you to do. That's just how life was. Nor could they quit or change employers or move away. None of that was open to them. For example, in the Greek city of Corinth, to which Paul wrote two letters contained in our Bible, there were at that time estimated to be a whopping 460,000 slaves in the city of Corinth and its surrounding area, and only 31,000 free people. So in the eyes of the Roman state, there's 460,000 slaves in Corinth and 31,000 people who are free citizens of the empire. 
That's, incre- that's, that's incredible. That's crazy. Vast numbers of people living in the Roman world were viewed as being one stripe of slave or another. I have no idea where Onesimus fit into all of that. I don't know if he was a little boy whose family was very poor and they thought our only way of providing four, th- uh, three square meals a day for him and clothes and a roof is to sell him to Philemon. Maybe Philemon can make something out of him. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know. <laughs> we just really have no clue. But after conducting extensive research into the practice of ancient slavery, especially as it relates to the Bible, a man named Andrew Lincoln wrote in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. In other words, slavery was so ubiquitous and common in that society that no one, not even slaves, thought the whole institution should be abolished. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we were talking about mortgages, and he pointed out that maybe it would be just as none of us challenged the idea of selling our life to a bank for 30 years. <laughs> maybe they just kind of thought of it similarly. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But whatever the case is, in the Roman world, there was not a sense that this was a wrong practice. This was just part of the economic landscape. It was part of reality. That doesn't make it right or wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that was, the, that was the view of the people who first received this letter. However, we should be clear that the practice of kidnapping people for the express purpose of selling them into slavery, I mean harvesting humanity like a resource to be exploited, as was done in the African slave trade, this was uh, expressly forbidden in both the Old and New Testaments of our Bible. For example, in the Old, text, Old Testament, it says this, Exodus 21, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And in New Testament, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1, it says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, and then Paul will write to Timothy a list of who those people are, (laughs) including the unholy and profane, people who hit their moms and dads, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, liars, perjurers, and included there in the list is slave traders. Paul says that this is lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinful this practice of harvesting humanity to gain workers for free. So that's a brief history of slavery. I think there are some really key distinctions, but I think probably the most, the biggest one is that it's not race-based and that most forms of slavery in the Roman world were things that had been to some extent uh, entered into voluntarily. However, again, I don't mean to gloss it over. It's pretty uncomfortable. But here's where I want to come out with this, the first of our two points this morning. The gospel is primarily designed to transform broken people, not the broken systems that they live in. Please don't hear me saying that God is callous and uncaring towards the broken systems and their consequences. Don't hear me say this and think that God was somehow ambivalent about the existence of slavery in the United States or the Roman Empire or all of its attendant abuses and exploitation, I don't believe that's true. The first century Roman world which first received the good news of the gospel was every bit as broken as our own. It was rife, guys, rife with deep, profound injustice, horrific brokenness, genocide, violence, dehumanizing treatment of women, ethnic hostility, political divisions, nasty exploitation, and the worst kinds of misuse of power. These rank injustices in some cases had even been legitimized and were enshrined in law. In the Roman world, so much evil was not done in the shadows, but was paraded openly in broad daylight in the streets, and nobody questioned it. There was a lot of wrong to offend Jesus, the righteous judge, 
as he tramped all over Judea, sizing up marketplaces, tax collectors, the governing elite, and the conditions of the poor. Think of Jesus sharing space with slave markets. Think of Jesus sharing space with Roman thugs. Think of Jesus sharing space with the poor and the downtrodden in the presence of people who built their lives on the back of them. And throughout his journey, throughout his 33 years of earthly ministry, Jesus bumped up against lots of folks who dreamed of something better. They longed with every fiber of their being for a political system that would not be so corrupt, so evil, so violent, so wicked. They read passages like Isaiah 61 and they became filled with an exciting vision of a coming king and kingdom that would bring good news to the poor, that would bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and set free those unjustly imprisoned. Those are the words of Isaiah 61. This would be a new order where justice and righteousness would reign where all those who had behaved in an evil, nasty, oppressive way would get what was coming to them. And those who had suffered innocently underneath their boot would be lifted up. They'd be rewarded. However, what we see multiple times in the gospel narratives is that they attached that exciting hope, that compelling vision to the overthrow of broken systems while neglecting the brokenness in the hearts of man. Rather than pouring their energies into transforming their inner world and looking forward to the promise of heaven, they neglected the inner world and sought to create a heaven on earth circumstantially through political action, through armed revolt. They tried to take Jesus by force and make him king, but he was having none of it. He escaped from their grip and went away. They tried to ensnare him in the controversial politics of his day. They asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And again, he's having none of it. And that same Jesus, who did not entangle himself in the issues that so inflamed the opinions of his, and the imaginations of his countrymen, said to his followers, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Fellow church, what have we been sent to planet earth to do? <laughs> what is our goal here? What is our mission? What is the central cause of our lives? For what has God brought us together to do? What are our marching orders? The gospel does not exist primarily to transform broken systems but rather to transform broken individuals within those systems and ultimately deliver them out of all this brokenness and into heaven. The main objective of Jesus was not to overthrow Rome or even reform the political, judicial, and economic systems that were so wildly unjust within the Roman Empire. Was his heart grieved? Of course it was. Of course. This thing stank from top to bottom. It's rife with sin, abuse. It's horribly wrong. But how did Jesus spend his passions, his time? Toward what end does he form his arguments? The gospel accounts scarcely scarcely touch upon the issues that so inflamed the passions of his fellow Judeans at the same time. The things Jesus talked about, you wouldn't have even heard about if you'd gone to the local watering hole in Jerusalem or something. I I used to have this problem. I used to go to a Bible study, and I swear, I mean, if you talked about Jesus and the kingdom, people would yawn. You talk about Obama and Trump, and people are tripping over themselves trying to get their opinions in. The kingdom bores a lot of Christians. It's the republic that captures their imagination. It's the republic that owns their passion. The kingdom, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about about this thing going on? What about this? What about that? What captures your imagination, fellow Christian? What causes allow your passions 
What, 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 what owns you in that way? What animates and governs you? The Bible often approaches, approaches issues from the inside out. If a person becomes personally transformed by the gospel, it will have its effect in changing the way they live and relate to others. It will. A person who has truly grasped what it is to be set free from their own slavery to sin and death will look upon the slaved condition of another person differently. This is what Paul pins his entire hopes towards when he writes Philemon, that this is true of him. You're a man who's been set free. What difference does that make in the way you relate to this man, Onesimus? A person who has grasped their own neediness before God will look on the neediness of their neighbor differently. The person who believes in a coming day of judgment will love justice now. I think that the, um, speaking again to the American experience with slavery, I think that at its essence, racism is antithetical to the gospel because whereas a racist boasts in their own blood, Christians have been trained by the gospel to boast only in the blood of Christ. We have no merit in and of ourselves. Do you see how the gospel changes us? Do you see how the gospel would change a man like Philemon? To say that the God who shows no partiality looks on me and Onesimus as equal before him. And one day we will both stand equally before the throne of judgment. So again, the Bible often approaches issues from the inside out. And a person who has been set free will view slavery differently. Although Paul never denounces the practice of slavery, the political system, the financial structure of the Roman Empire, this backbone establishment that was a given in the minds of everyone at that time, he never out and out denounces the practice. As F.F. Bruce says, what Paul's letters do is bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. He says to Philemon, accept him back not as a slave, but as a brother. That's interesting. Uh, when I lived in Florida, they have an absolutely horrible plant down there called the kudzu vine. <laughs> Does anybody know about the kudzu vine? Some of you? Man, my goodness, they are prolific, this plant. Uh, what they do is they're, they're an invasive species from Japan, and they grow... I swear, there's all kinds of pictures, like people go on vacation, they come back, their whole house is covered in them. They grow amazingly fast. You can almost see them grow. You can maybe hear them grow. I mean, <laughs> they're really kind of creepy. But they will choke out an entire forest. They will just go right up into the canopy, go right up over the top of the trees. They will block all the sunlight, all the trees, all the understory will die. They're a real problem. So there's whole companies in Florida that go around cutting back the kudzu vines. But here's the problem with kudzu vines. Their roots can go as deep as 20 feet into the ground. And their root system for one vine can weigh as much as 200 pounds. They spread out underground incredibly. And if you don't eradicate every bit of that root, they're going to reclaim the exact same territory by the next year. It's impossible. It's a losing war. The, how Florida is not completely covered in kudzu vines is a mystery to me. <laughs> but here's the thing about kudzu vines. All they do, these companies, is they go and they hack it back to the ground. And essentially, if we poured our efforts, our passions, our time, our money, our influence into fixing broken systems in the world... If we could just elect this party into power, if we could just get this balance on the Supreme Court, if we could just get this law passed through, if we just put our passions into that, like the Jews in Jesus' day thought if we could just get the Romans out, Romans out of Israel, if we could just get to this set of political circumstances, all of that is tantamount to hacking the kudzu down to the ground. And it might allow light in for a moment. But if we do that to the neglect of the problem in the human heart, it will re-sprout, come back with vigor, reclaim the entire territory. Everything instituted by man, invented by man, peopled by men, is guaranteed to go wrong 
and horribly so. Horribly so. There is no political system that has accounted for the problem of sin in its entirety. There is no solution for this which is so deeply rooted in the problem of the human condition. Now, I, I, uh, I point that out not to paint a very dark, hopeless picture, but just to let you know, again, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, let's understand rightly what we're doing here together on planet Earth. It's not to get entangled in political controversies. It's not to fix broken systems. That's not the goal of the church. I hope for a state that takes those things seriously. Remember, the state and the church were both instituted by God to address the needs of fallen man. Both have been given to fallen man for our good. The state exists to preserve fallen man, to reward good and punish evil. The church exists to transform fallen man and deliver fallen man out of this world and into heaven. Now, it's a bit messy here in the United States because we live in a representative republic. We don't just pray for the king, but in some respects, you are the king. You're in charge. We determine policy through our vote. And it is a bit messy, and that's worthy of exploration by the American church. But I just think that the church needs to keep the main thing the main thing. And I think that's what I'm advocating here for. But that, that discussion will continue and will be passionate and difficult. <laughs> I'll let you guys take that up in your small groups. Where exactly is the line between our obligations uh, to create a culture that reflects the peace and beauty of biblical truth in our public policy and the church's main objective, not to get embroiled in trying to fix broken systems, but to help transform broken people within all this mess. I look back now on those four years right after college, and here we're transitioning to the second thought, which is that relationships among God's people must look different than those in the surrounding culture. We in the church exist in part to point the surrounding culture to a more excellent way. I look back now on those four years right after college that I worked as a police officer as my first seminary class. I had no idea at the time that I was going to become a pastor. In fact, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, but God knew His plans for me, and He wanted me to see some things as part of my education. Uh, Barry and Janet Tate, my parents, had done an, a really good job of sheltering me as a young man, which is altogether right, by the way. I, I, think, I think it's not uncommon to hear people talk about sheltered kids as though some disservice was done to them. Uh, but ships are not built on the open sea. Uh, they are built in a sheltered harbor. And ships have to be built tough, of course, because they will inevitably venture out. But it would be madness to try and build a ship in the middle of the heaving ocean. And just like ch ships, children should be built up in a sheltered harbor as well. Parents, I urge you to shelter your children. <laughs> build them up in a safe place. This is part of the reason why I like to promote Christian colleges to young people. I'm not saying that my parents were perfect or that I was either. No, 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 of course not. I'm just saying that I was pretty naive, and I had been spared the worst of it. However, when I ventured out under full sail and became a police officer, I was confronted instantly by some pretty ugly things that I had never seen in the Tate household. God wanted me to see it all. He wanted me to stand there helplessly trying to arbitrate landlord-tenant disputes. He wanted me to help the woman collect her teeth that had been knocked out in a domestic assault. He wanted, to me, wanted me to be on hand when children were removed from homes. I could go on and on and on. Guys, I saw relationships that were terribly broken. People living within systems that were broken. Now, church, we exist as a people within a people. And many times in the Bible, God lays out in expectations that relationships within the church would look different from the surrounding culture. I think about Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus. In the Roman world, women were, frankly, not much better off than slaves. You could arguably say that they were born slaves as a bright matter of their gender. 
They did not have standing in the courts, could not own property in many cases, could not speak for themselves. They did not have agency. Paul, writing into that context, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. This relationship has to look different within the church than in this culture that sees no value in your wife. Love her in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave, her, gave himself up for her. Seek your joy in her joy. This is going to look different. The way Christian men and women live in relationship together is going to be different than the way Ephesians do more generally. Has to be. This is what Paul does. Paul does not say, we're going to all get together and march on Rome to address this horrible wrong that's being done to women. He says in the church, this is going to be different. Guys, I don't know what kind of country my kids will have, but I am pouring all my efforts and passions into what kind of church they're going to have in the midst of whatever country is here. (laughs) And I think that's what Paul is saying here when he's addressing Christian men and women in Ephesus. We're living in the middle of a horrible unbrokenness, horrible brokenness, horrible injustice, deep wrong. But let the kingdom begin here among us. Let what's right and good flourish in our relationships with one another. We can be different in the church, and in fact, we must be. I think of God um, telling Peter to go to the house of Cornelius. Peter's deep soul-searching over that, his deep discomfort. There's real racial animus. He can't go to Cornelius' house. That guy's a Gentile. That's icky. That's wrong. (laughs) It's maybe even against the law. But God says, no, Cornelius, you can't, I mean, Peter, you can't think that way about Cornelius. This is going to look different in the church than in the culture that you grew up in. No honest movement of God will show up without disturbing the spirits of the neighborhood. It just doesn't happen. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes about how the relationship between parents and children is going to look different than in the surrounding culture. And Without spending any time on it, please go read it. He writes about slaves and masters as well. But this has to look different. The way that Christian slaves and Christian masters conduct themselves. I want to point us out in closing, and I'll try to do this very briefly, three ways that Philemon and Onesimus are encouraged to put the gospel on display in their slave-master relationship in a way, really, that would confound the expectations of the surrounding culture. First is this, Paul models for Philemon the superiority of appeals over commands. This is a relationship governed by love. Philemon and Onesimus, you guys are two Christians. And what Paul is going to do to Philemon is put on demonstration here the superiority of appealing to shared value rather than commands. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This points Philemon to the new dynamic that will hold sway between him and Onesimus. Acting out of freedom from a heart of love is the goal wherever Christians live in relationship. In verses 13 through 14, Paul emphasizes that although as an apostle, He holds a place of governing authority in Philemon's life, not unlike the place that Philemon holds over Onesimus. Paul wants to avoid using force or coercion in his dealings to get his way. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And this is how God deals with us, by the way. Has God removed from you the threat of punishment? He has. He has. He has removed from you absolutely the threat of punishment. Whatever you do sinfully, the punishment for that was laid out on Jesus. And now in the most expansive language, God says, you are free to follow me because you love the truth. You love righteousness. You love me says, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. 
And now you are a people governed by love. You do what's right because you love it. And if you do what's wrong, there's no stick. That's an amazing deal. It's almost too much for us to believe. I think many Christians do struggle to believe it and to live like that's true. Surely, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation? No condemnation. No mitigating language surrounding that. That is what God means. And Paul demonstrates this to Philemon. He does not say, I've got the stick, but I'm not going to use it. I'm just going to tell you right now, whatever you do, I want you to do out of love. And this is how you are to operate with Onesimus, your brother, your fellow Christian. Secondly, Paul encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Verses 15 through 16, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. We started by talking about this man whose name was Onesimus, useful. He's useful to the people in his life. He's not beloved. And now we come all the way to the end where Paul says to him, that relationship has fundamentally changed. You're going to receive him back not as a slave, but as a brother, a beloved brother. So many of the warped and misshapen relationships that I witnessed as a police officer were marked by the view that others were useful, but not cherished and loved. And Paul says this is going to look different in the household of Philemon than in the surrounding culture. Your relationship to Onesimus can't be defined by his utility to you. He's a beloved brother. This man named Useful will be called something different, brother, beloved. The gospel has fundamentally changed how these two men will look on one another. God has made us part of his very family. And one verse in here that's very, very interesting to me. Um, is this. Verse 21, Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Wink, wink. (laughs) Now, I don't know what Paul meant. I don't know if Philemon understood what he meant. But I think one possibility here is you should free Onesimus. I think that's possible. Uh, Receive him back not as a slave, but as a brother. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I don't know what that could mean. But one thing I do know is that this relationship has fundamentally changed. It's a different dynamic at work. We are going to spend zero time on this last point because it is the topic of next week's sermon. But the third way that we see, possibly the most important way, that Onesimus and Philemon will put the gospel on display is through forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, This is going to happen, and that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Uh, So without um, doing my whole sermon, because you guys are are probably ready for another sermon right now, right? (laughs) I think we'll save that for next week. Uh, But those are the three things I wanted you guys to see here. Uh, Paul uh, does not bring a heavy-handed stick of coercion to Philemon. He appeals to him on the basis of what Philemon loves leads him by his desires to what's right and true and good. And this relationship has fundamentally changed. It is now a family relationship, uh, that they are brothers. And Philemon's relationship with uh, Onesimus is no longer governed by Onesimus's utility to him. Maybe named useful, but he is beloved. And that's an important change. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, it is a confusing world that we live in. Father, it is difficult for us as Americans who are engaged citizens in a system where we, just as a matter of being contextually aware, where we each of us have a voice in public policy and in our representative leadership and the things that they advocate for. Father, we are in a strange political system here that could not have even been conceived of probably by Paul when he wrote this letter. Uh, But God, you certainly knew about it. Uh, You who exist outside of time and are Lord over all the years, 
God, you knew about the coming American experience. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to apply what we see here in Philemon to our own context here in the United States. God, there is much around us that would outrage, that does outrage you, that outrages our sensibilities. God, we look at a world and we see a lot of brokenness, and some of, those bro- some of that brokenness is in the misuse of power and other forms and expressions. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to know where the church fits in the midst of all of that. Father, one thing's for sure, I do come away from your word filled with a sense that your heart is for the church to transform individuals and deliver them out. And God, I'm grateful for the way that that does bleed over into a a society-shaping reality. But God, rather than looking out at the culture and saying, how can we fix all this, Father, I pray that each of us would look inside and say, God, be Lord here in my own heart today. God, let, let the subjugation of this wild, woolly, sin-riddled world begin with my own heart today. God, is there, area, is there an area in my life where I am not yet gospel-shaped where I'm living out of step with the gospel? Is there some relationship, God, that is not the fullness of what you would have it be? God, I pray that your church would point the surrounding culture to a more excellent way. God, that your love would be made real here in our midst. God, that here we would love one another well, that we would be a place where forgiveness and reconciliation happens where we would welcome people as brothers, being eager to not hold their faults against them, but being full of grace towards one another. Father, I pray that our relationships with our employees and our employers, with our landlords and with our tenants, with our children, our spouses, our neighbors, God, I pray, God let your church be different. God, let your church be different. Let me be different. God, please, by your Holy Spirit, make us into a peculiar people, a strange tribe, a people within a people that reflects your glory and points people towards you and how good and excellent and right on you are. In Jesus' name, amen.